Hi, every guy. Oh my god. Hi, every guys. Is that really what I was about to say? Okay. Hello, everyone. This is probably my fourth time recording this intro because I can't seem to speak or get my words out correctly. So let's let's try this again. Let's just hope this is a good one. My name is Grace Brown. I'm sitting on the floor of my bedroom hoping the quality of this audio comes out great and you guys can all hear my voice well and I don't sound annoying. I'm also hoping that I can refrain from saying the word um for the remaining of this recording because I have a tendency to say that word and I would like to not annoy you guys by saying it 20 million times. So yeah, let me just guys give you guys a little bit of background on myself. I am a senior at Elon University, soon to be graduating. I was supposed to be graduating May 22nd um, at Elon University. I just said the word um, okay. And that's not happening, but nonetheless, I'm still graduating. Hasn't happened yet, but everything's everything's going well right now, so it should happen. But yeah, I'm a human service studies major at Elon, and today I'm going to be talking about juvenile justice. And I just want to give you guys a little bit of a background on how I came to be interested in this field of human services and why I am passionate about it and will continue to abdicate for reform and juvenile justice for the rest of my life. So this semester, before everything happened, I with COVID. I had the privilege of interning at the Department of Juvenile Justice in Alamance County, North Carolina. Um, This department is a state agency that addresses the social problem of undisciplined and juvenile delinquents. And I just want everyone to keep in mind as I talk about this field that state agencies, the state agencies for juvenile justice, they're First priority is the safety of the community and then the well-being of the youth. And this is just important to keep in mind as I talk about the subject because many of the processes within the agency and the laws and how the court orders things are for the well-being of the community. And the juvenile is is the second priority and the community is the first. So that's just important to keep in mind. Now, I don't want to bore you guys with too many of the details but I think it's important to understand how agencies such as the Department of Juvenile Justice operate um, especially if you plan on going into uh, juvenile justice it, it is imperative that you understand how these agencies operate um, when working with juveniles so let's cover their goals some funding the clients and barriers they run into so you can get a better understanding of the agency um, if you go on any websites, um, or like in your state, um, North Carolina, they have the North Carolina Department of Public Safety website, which has a ton of, ton of information on it. If you guys are ever curious, um, wherever you're from about finding more information, um, their websites are filled with information. So that's a good place to start, but I'm going to give you guys some background. So, The agency states its goals as the following. Now, bear with me. This is a mouthful, but it's important. So 
Their goals are stated as the following, fostering communities that are safe from juvenile crime, collaborating with judges, district attorneys, juvenile defense attorneys, law enforcement agencies, schools, and other service providers to determine and provide the right program for the youth, providing safe and secure housing for youth in care, and to provide programming that teaches pro-social skills, providing accurate assessment and effective treatment of youth, preventing youth from initial or further involvement in the juvenile justice system through partnerships with local governments and communities, and finally, providing educational and or vocational opportunities for youth to realize success when they leave our system and re-enter the community. And again, just to reiterate what I said earlier, the first goal is fostering communities that are safe from juvenile crime. Um, just bear that in mind. So onto the funding. If you're familiar with the human services field and the human, and human service prof- professions, then you are all too familiar with the lack of money within this field. Um, many, many agencies, t- number one concern is, fu- is funding and having um, adequate resources to provide for their clientele. And juvenile justice is no exception to this. So I'm sorry. I just, that was a big deep breath. Sorry. <laughs> um, so the agency receives a majority of its funding from the state, but in some instances, it will also receive federal funding. And one of the main, well, first off, they don't receive enough funding. But another challenge that arises with this is um, many, many agencies run into barriers acquiring adequate resources for their clients. So just to give you guys a little example, many mental health substance abuse programs and group homes require approval from insurance prior to admitting a juvenile. And if insurance denies the juvenile, then they're limited to the services they're able to receive. So in Alamance County, there are only so many agencies that you can refer your juvenile to. And what happens if they just get denied, denied, denied from these resources that they really do need? And a lot of times what can happen is it's sort of who looks worse on paper sometimes. So you might be a court counselor working with a juvenile and they're really struggling. They need mental health services. But if someone else is referring their juvenile to these services and they look like they need the services more on paper than your juvenile, then they're probably going to get admitted and your juvenile might get denied because spots are limited. Um, there's not, There are not enough resources in most counties to help as many people or as many juveniles as needed so that is one of the agency's main concerns and they wish that they had enough funding to you know have their own resources within their agencies you know have mental health programs have substance abuse programs within their agency so they didn't have to refer juveniles out side to other other programs in the community in that way you know it, it's a one-stop shop the juveniles come in for services and they don't have to go searching or nobody has to search for alternate resources outside of the agency um this would just allow them to serve every juvenile adequately according to their needs without running into any obstacles with referrals Um, So with that being said, if you are familiar with juvenile justice, you might already know some of this information. But as you may have guessed, (laughs) juvenile justice agencies' clients are juveniles or youth who, 
or youth who are at or below the upper age of original jurisdiction in a state. Now, in most states, the upper age is 17. However, some, the upper age is 16. North Carolina, this previous year just passed, raised, raised the age to make their 17 as well, which is great because, you know, we want to keep people in the juvenile... I mean, we, you don't want them in the system, but you also don't want 16 and 17-year-olds being tried in adult court. Um, so it's good that they passed that. I think they were the last state to pass that. <laughs> Um, so good job on finally doing that. Um, so in Alamance County, the Department of Juvenile Justice serves youth age 17 years old or younger who have committed a crime or are proven to be undisciplined for things such as truancy or running away from home. And truancy, if you are unfamiliar with that term, is um, just when a juvenile is skipping a lot, a lot of school. So a school can call in saying that they have a student that is not coming to school or a parent might also call in um, and file that complaint. Um, Now, I think when we're talking about the clientele, it's important to talk about master statuses such as race, class, and disability because all these must be taken into consideration when you're exploring a juvenile's interaction with the justice system. Now, a majority of the complaints or 52% of the complaints that the department in Alamance County received by race were black African American. So that's over half were 52% followed by white 34% and then Hispanic and Latino at 10%. And then the complaints filed were majority male 75% and then female at 25%. And then just another little detail Um, The top three delinquent offenses in 2018 for which complaints were received were simple assault, misdemeanor larceny, sorry, and disorderly conduct at school. This quote, um, just to give you guys a little bit of a visual when we're talking about master statuses and how master statuses impact a juvenile's interaction with the justice system. I found this quote on Twitter. I think... I did not say that right. I found this quote on Twitter. Okay. (laughs) Edward Palmer once said, if we think of a crisis as a storm, then consider that communities of color and disadvantaged communities sail into the storm on a shipwrecked boat. All systems have already failed. Systematic racism and oppression have plagued communities and greatly affected which youth face greater and harsher consequences within the juvenile justice system. And that is why it's important that... um, it's so important that we talk about master statuses um, when we're talking about juvenile justice. So at the Department of Juvenile Justice in Alamance County, the majority of juveniles are black males, followed by white males and then Latinx males. Um, the prevalence of racial and ethnic disparities in the justice system is statewide. It's not just in North Carolina. Just to give you guys a little bit more statistics, more statistics um black youth are five times more likely to be detained or committed compared to white youth and four times more likely to be incarcerated compared to white youth a majority of juveniles in the system struggle with their mental health as well the most prevalent diagnosis within diagnoses within the population as of 2018 are disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders, neurodevelopmental disorders, substance-related and addictive disorders, trauma and stressor, 
related disorders and dis- and depressive disorders. Um, so, you know, mental health combined with race and class um, are, are barriers that arise in making sure that all juveniles going through the system get the appropriate help they need. Um, low socioeconomic status has an absorbent, absorbent amount of barriers that stem from it as well, such as unstable home environments, neighborhoods, and poor schools, school districts. This is not an exhaustive list of some of the barriers that juveniles run into within the justice system, but just a brief, brief overview of some of the things that impact them on a daily basis. So the agency does try to combat the disparity in the justice system by identifying key factors that contribute to disproportionate minority contact in North Carolina. Um, they interview juvenile court counselors about the intake and decision-making process and court services. They're developing critical decision point maps that show where DMC occurs, which is disproportion- disproportionate minority contact. They conduct workshops for division staff to promote awareness and develop strategies to address it. And they're always updating work plans for division staff to include language ensuring fair and equitable decision-making for youth. Um, so the agencies are trying to address this problem, but it is a systemic problem. Um, the disparities are everywhere in the U.S. So there are a lot of... Um, changes that need to be made to really get to the root of it, but they are trying to address it. Um, to continue on with um, some of the barriers that the clients face when they come into the system, um, because the clients are juveniles, parents and families have to be involved in the entire process, and this does create some problems because a lot of parents um, work full-time or have hours that don't work for them to be able to come into all the meetings and appointments and drive their kid everywhere um, that is needed if their kid is on probation. So a lot of times it is very, very hard for um, juveniles to complete their court orders if they need their parents' help with things and the parent does not have the time to to give them um they have to work they have to feed their other kids they have to keep a roof over their head um and then sometimes there are also uncooperative parents who don't really want to be involved in their child's life or anything that they have to do within the justice system but regardless um the tasks that juveniles have to complete on probation are not simple and they take time and they take commitment and support from a lot of people, and it's really, really challenging if you have parents who are working 24-7. Um, it's really hard for them to get everything done. Um, and then gang involvement is another common life experience for juveniles who are entering the system. And I think it's important that people understand that, yes, gangs can be violent, but they also offer a sense of community and safety to juveniles who might be in a very, very violent environment. Um, and for that reason, they can be extremely difficult to, it can be extremely difficult to remove a juvenile from that situation if they are 
in an environment that is already violent and they want a sense of community and protection, then gangs might be, in their eyes, the best option. Um, But when we're talking about the justice system, it does create some barriers because if the gang is violent or if they are... um, or if they are robbing robbing houses, whatever, um, that can get juveniles into more trouble. So it does create some obstacles. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the specific the, the specific role the court counselor plays. Um, so when I was at the Department of Juvenile Justice, I was shadowing and observing the court counselors and um, learning from them. So, um, it is a, a state-run agency, as I said, so they do have a strict set of, set of guidelines that are founded in evidence-based practices. I remember my first day, or the first week, pretty much, I was reading um, a book of all of their policies. It was super, super exciting, but I took some notes. I asked some questions because there's a lot of information that's important to know, especially when there are so many strict guidelines. Um, It's important that you understand them and follow them and ask questions if you're unsure about things because you want to make sure you're doing your job um, according to the policy so that you don't get into trouble with, you know, the court, the government. Um, That would not be fun. So when a juvenile comes in for their initial intake, the court counselor will assess the risks and needs of the juvenile in order to provide for the security of the community and the juvenile's well-being. Again, this is something that's directly from their website and the security of the community is stated first and then the juvenile's well-being. Um, The court counselor will decide whether the juvenile is undisciplined or delinquent, meaning they have committed a crime. As I said earlier, if they're delinquent and they've committed a crime, um, they're going to be put on some stricter orders. But if the juvenile is found to be undisciplined, the court counselor will will create a diversion plan for the juvenile. Diversion plans are created to divert youth from the court and usually last six months. Um, Again, Normally they aren't extended, but if a juvenile doesn't complete their plan, then it might be extended or they might get into, if they get into more trouble, you know, there's always things that can happen and arise, but normally it's six months. Um, These plans include checkups on the juvenile's progress at school and home. And then if the juvenile is found to be delinquent, they will be put on probation, which is much stricter than any diversion plan. Um, probation can include things such as community service, teen court, strict curfews, no association with other juveniles on, on probation, ankle monitoring, 24-hour supervision by an adult, and more. And if the court finds the juvenile to be a threat to the community, then the juvenile can be placed in secure detention if warranted. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about detention and YDCs a little bit later, but... For now, that is just the gist of what a court counselor does. Um, And I think when we're talking about juvenile justice, um, this system was created because our society, for the most part, thinks that children are, quote, savable. That is directly from their website. 
And I think this statement holds some controversy and some truth. First, as a human service professional, we all know it is not our job to save our clients. I think that is one common misconception when you're coming into this field. I know it was for myself. I'm someone, I think that's why I was drawn to this field. I knew that was the kind of person I was. But you really have to reframe your mindset because you are not there to save people. Um, um, also, yeah, that's just not what you're there for. So it would be a mistake and an injustice to walk into the justice system thinking you were going to save every juvenile you worked with. You would not enjoy your job if that's what you thought. And I'm sure people you worked with would not really be too happy with you. Um, so our society will also claim this statement true for some children and not for others, specifically children of color. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there is a huge disparity within the system. Um, 52% of the juveniles in North Carolina are 50, are black and African American. Um, and unfortunately, these are the juveniles that tend to be ignored, and these are the juveniles that we tend to think aren't savable because they're already too far gone, or, uh, you know, they're such bad kids, but, so it's unfortunate that we will apply this statement to some children and not others, but I will say this statement that children are savable in a way does hold some truth so if, if we're thinking about children between or adolescents or juveniles between the ages of 6 and 17 um, their development is going to be greatly impacted by their environment and as a court counselor it is of the utmost importance to highlight a juvenile's strengths and work with them to break down the obstacles in their way to opportunity and I think it's extremely important to empower your clients and assist them to the best of your abilities as support is a nece- is necessary for everyone in all walks of life. Um, so if any- anything, as a court counselor, just offering support and doing your best to get your juvenile um, the resources that they may need is really one of the best things you can do for them and not thinking that you're going to save them um, because, you know, there are other things that need to be addressed within the system um, besides that. So I'm going to switch directions a little bit because I think it is is important to talk about juvenile justice in the midst of this pandemic. Um, I think that this pandemic has highlighted some of the cracks within our nation's system and has really brought them to the forefront Um for people to see, um, I think countless of countless people have been advocating, and those people who are locked up and incarcerated are a huge population that have really been bought, brought to the forefront of this conversation because um, we really, really need to, as a nation, rethink how this system operates. Um, so just to give you guys a little bit of a little bit of facts and information, I guess numbers is better to, better way to put it. Um, nationwide, there are forty three thousand youth in juvenile lockups in prisons, um, living in coronavirus petri peach tree peach tree petri dishes. 
that have become brewing reservoirs of infection, according to inmates and juvenile justice experts. So COVID-19 is not only spreading through prisons, but is also spreading through juvenile detention centers. Um, And incarcerated juveniles may be more susceptible to COVID-19 due to trauma histories and impoverished childhoods. Oh my goodness, I can't speak. And impoverished childhoods, um, which cause poor health. So when you combine poor health with close confined living quarters, um, it really does make these juveniles more susceptible to COVID-19 um, because the youth in these facilities are not able to practice social distancing and the facilities are not equipped to handle an outbreak of COVID-19. And actually in Louisiana, 10% of the youth in Louisiana's secure detention facilities, more than two dozen, have tested positive for COVID-19, a higher number than any of the other 22 states for which data is available. Again, because this pandemic is happening right now, um, there isn't as much data as I'm sure is going to come out when this is all over. So, you know, it could be worse than this. And some states aren't releasing data, and which is a really, really kind of scary. Um, so when this is all over, I'm sure there's going to be some data that comes out that shocks people. But even that, um, that what's happening in Louisiana right now is scary um, because parents are terrified. I mean, they're no, no longer allowed to visit their children and they're scared that their kid might die in, in these detention centers. Um, and these families and juveniles are a huge blind spot when we're dealing with a public health crisis. Way too often our society, specifically those with privilege and power, ignore those that have been labeled as less than human or not worthy of help. Um, and we tend to ignore incarcerated populations, um, and juveniles that are included in that. Um, so... Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes, but (laughs) detention centers and YDCs, um, the youth development centers, have adjusted their protocol protocol due to the pandemic. Youth in detention are housed in separate dormitories according to their symptoms, and test results and new arrivals are isolated for a period in case symptoms develop. But some states are attempting to get as many juveniles out of the facilities as possible, Actually, in Connecticut, every week, judges review the cases of juveniles via teleconference, while other officials meet to determine whether these youth convicted of crimes can be sent home or to a, to lower security facilities. So, you know, they are trying to do something about it. I, um, Not all states are on top of it, but um, it is good to see that some states and advocacy groups are pushing um for juveniles to be sent home and out of incarcerated detention centers. Um, advocacy groups and other enti- entities have been stepping up and trying to help juveniles and lock up and their families as well. Recently, advocacy groups in 33 states have called local leaders to quickly examine fundamentals of juvenile justice system, including the use of lockup for youth who are detained while waiting to have their cases heard in court. Um, and I don't... I know that um, when this initially happened, you know, the courts closed down, so juveniles were not having their cases heard, so everybody's just sitting around waiting. Um, So for those juveniles who are sent to be detained while they're waiting to have their 
cases heard have been in there for a few months without their cases being heard. So advocacy groups are pushing for them to be let go. Um, Many are prodding those in power to eliminate any form of detention or incarceration for youth and release some of those already in detention. Um, It has been recommended to remove youth who have COVID-19 symptoms or chronic illnesses, such as asthma, diabetes, or other serious illnesses. Um, They need to provide access to COVID-19 testing and healthcare while youth are awaiting release and ensure continued access to education and arrange access to family and support networks through open phone access. You know, I think that is one of the scariest things um, for parents and families not knowing when they're going to see their child again or if the child not knowing when they're going to see their family again um, in the midst of a crisis that is very, very terrifying. But hopefully this pandemic will make those in power rethink the way we handle juvenile justice. Amidst this crisis, we have an opportunity to re-examine the way we have structured the juvenile justice system. Um, there's more that can and should be done for those in the system and it's time that we focus on creating opportunities and solutions instead of barriers. And I think in the midst of a crisis, um, change can and should happen. Now, to wrap it up, um, I want to touch on what can be done in the future and what groups are currently doing for juvenile justice reform. Um, Gina Womack, the Executive Director of Families and Friends, of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, a program that focuses on creating a better life for all of Louisiana's youth, said, Has any society ever incarcerated its way out of a systemic problem? Shouldn't we be creating opportunities and solutions instead of barriers? And I think this is just a good quote to set up what I'm about to go into because it's true. Um, I mean, the U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration um, of any other country. And um, incarceration is not going to solve systemic problems. Um, So as I reflect on the knowledge I have gained about juvenile justice in America, sometimes I think it might more appropriately appropriately be named juvenile injustice um, because the system makes it extremely difficult to give these kids the justice they deserve. Um, They're locked up and the larger issues that affect them in such disproportionate numbers are ultimately ignored. You know, again, I, I I want to say though that court counselors are needed and while I am about to um, suggest reform, I think that you know, I hope I've highlighted the the work that court counselors do because they are doing amazing work and we need people in their roles regardless of what the system looks like. You know, I I think we can push for change um, in a system, but also um, highlight the good that people are already doing within it um, because court counselors, you know, they're working with what they got. As I said earlier, you know, the policies and laws are in place to first protect the community and court counselors do everything they can to protect the juveniles. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, there's only so much they can do to keep juveniles out of incarceration. Um, and there's only so many things that they can 
suggest to the court to keep um, juveniles out of, out of incarceration. So at the end of the day, there are things we need to do to change the system so that court counselors are not running into as many obstacles and barriers with their clients. Um, so I just wanted to say that because court counselors are doing amazing things and they're needed, um, but I think change is also needed. So during my time at the Department of Juvenile Justice, I was confronted with some harsh realities about how the system operates. As I mentioned earlier, there's a huge lack of resources that ultimately funnels youth into detention centers and YDCs. Um, the court counselors I worked alongside are doing their best to assist their youth, but roadblocks in the system are hard to get around. We have a system that focuses on punishment and incarceration, and what we need is a system that focuses on rehabilitation and education. Um, this process of turning the justice system around will be met with resistance. I can assure you people are already working so, so hard on this um, on this area um, of reform, and it has been met with resistance, but people are really doing amazing things, and I think um, it's important to highlight that so that people have hope, um, and they keep pushing for change because change needs to be made for the well-being of juveniles, their families, and communities. And one of the things that we can do is we can start by getting rid of transfer laws. Um, so transfer laws are laws that all states have that allow or require young offenders to be prosecuted as adults for more serious offenses, regardless of their age. Studies show that transfer to adult court was associated with higher recidivism rates among juveniles convicted of a person and property offenses when contrasted with counterparts adjudicated in juvenile court. Um, so transferring juveniles to adult court does not scare them into acting accordingly with the law. Rather, it increases their criminal act activity. Um, and the purpose of the juvenile justice system, as I've said, is to protect the safety and the well-being of the community and in the juvenile. And transfer laws do neither. Um, they increase the punishment of the, the juvenile will be subjected to by placing them in adult courts and facilities, as well as increase the violence that juveniles may be subjected to in an adult facility. Communities nor juveniles um, are more safe due to higher recidivism rates that um, are seen when you transfer a juvenile to adult court. So I think getting rid of transfer laws is one of the way, first things that needs to be done. Um, another step would be, and this is a big step, but getting rid of all youth incarceration centers. Um, you know, the path to prison starts in the formative years of these youth lives. There is no positive outcome in locking up a kid as young as eight year, years old. It is detrimental to juveniles' well-being. It increases re recidivism rates, and it's so, so expensive to states. Um, research shows that between 70% and 80% of juveniles who have been in residential correction programs are subsequently rearrested within a three-year period. And research indicates that incarceration of juveniles is generally ineffective in reducing recidivism and may maintain or even increase levels of engagement in antisocial behavior and criminal activity. Um, as I said, it's expensive. States spend on average about $5.7 billion each year imprisoning youth. That's just one state, $5.7 billion. Um, I think it's on average one hundred and forty grand per child 
which is more than is spent on their education, which is sad and scary that we're spending more money on locking juveniles up than we are spending on their education. If that doesn't tell you something about the way our system operates, then I don't know what does. Um, the money spent on imprisoning youth every year would be much better spent on education and evidence-based treatments and programs based in communities such as functional family therapy and multi-systemic therapy. Um, incarceration of youth offenders is neither a good solution in terms of outcome or cost. And so for all the money people out there, your money is much better spent on educating these children than it is on locking them up. Um, so yeah, that's my little informational podcast on juvenile justice. Um, I hope that all made sense and I hope that I didn't bore you guys with too many details, but, um, just to wrap it up, I want to briefly talk about, um, my time at Elon as a human services major because this has been probably as of yet the most impactful decision I have made um, on myself and what I plan to do in the future. I have gained an even greater appreciation for those in who work in the human service field from my internship at the Department of Juvenile Justice because it's not an easy field to work in. Um, it is worthwhile, but it's not easy. Um, the professionals in this field that I've had the pleasure of working alongside and observing have taught me more than I could put into words or maybe even recognize. Um, just to list a few things. <laughs> I've learned that there's probably no way to be perfect at your job when you're working with people in their lives. I've determined that there's so much more I must unlearn about what society tells a white woman to think about the world around her. I've come to understand that my white privilege means I actively benefit from being white and from the oppression of people of color. I've learned that silence is a necessary skill and sometimes it is better to just sit back and listen. In the future, I hope that discomfort is something I constantly experience so that I may become a master of dealing with it. And I know that human service skills such as self-awareness, cultural competency, empathy, empowerment, self-care, active listening, respecting differences, and teamwork, just to name a few, are invaluable skills in life and the professional world. The skills I've learned throughout my time as a human service major are skills that I will continue to develop, share, and use for the rest of my life. And finally, I understand probably more than I have ever in my life. It is simply my love of people, human connection, myself, and the and just life that has drawn me to this field. And I think it is easy to lose hope when there's so much despair and tragedy around you um, when you're working in this field. But I also find peace in knowing that there are so many people who truly do care about making this world a more just place. And... I hope that, as my teachers have for me, I can continue to inspire people to join me in um, fighting for social justice issues and basic human rights for all people so that we can all live in a more equitable and just world. But 
that was my podcast on juvenile justice and I hope you guys enjoyed and I hope everyone has a good day.